Um, we're going to start a new series this morning, and uh, I feel a little bit, uh, what's my word? I feel a little bit conflicted that through after worship, I, I just kind of felt this sense of God really wanting to minister to us this morning in a, a very specific way that doesn't seem to match the beginning of my message, but it definitely matches the ending of my message. Um, but the beginning of the message is actually really important to get us to the end of the message. So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm just going to kind of talk from my heart, I think, and, and kind of work from this a little bit and kind of launch the series. And we want to get the, the idea is we want to get to this place of fresh revelation from God, okay? Fresh revelation from God. How many could use that in your life? I mean, I, yeah. daily. I mean, fresh revelation is not something that I think a lot of Christians have this idea that we, we get a revelation from God maybe once or twice in our lifetime, but it's not the way it's intended to be. God is always, always, always speaking to us and always challenging us to grow and to transform deep beneath the surface of our lives, not just to change our behaviors, not just to, to play kind of cultural Christianity, but to, to really be followers of Jesus. And I've become convinced that not every Christian is a disciple of Jesus. Not every Christian is a follower of Jesus. People, they identify as a Christian and they come to church and they're part of the culture, but not every one of us is going to follow Jesus when he says, come and follow me. But that is what Jesus is always saying to us. When we read his word, when we, when we study, when we learn, when we grow, when we take courses, Jesus is always, always saying, hey, Curtis, come follow me. Simon, come follow me. Heidi, come follow me. Come follow me. So the question this morning, and the question we're going to end with in this day is, what are you going to do with that call? What are you going to do with God? The series that we're starting today is called Storied. And what this series is really, it's, it's been several years actually in the making. We've had this dream for some time now um, where we wanted to actually preach the whole Bible. Now that like the idea at first seemed like a really great idea. Like, we're just going to preach the whole Bible, the whole thing. We're going to start at Genesis 1, and we're going to go straight through to Revelation. And then I realized that, like, you guys, most of you would probably get, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 before you left, um, because you know me in the book of Genesis, right? <laughs> me and the book of Genesis are pals. Uh, and so we kind of really figured out that that is completely impractical to do in, in, a, in a sermon series. But in the process of, of reading and studying, uh, we kind of I fell in this, this idea that it's not so much that we want to teach you the whole Bible, but we want to teach you the story of the Bible, because it's the story that all other stories find their meaning and position and place in. It's the story that, that shapes and molds our lives. And really, while this is 66 different books written over several thousand years by some 80 authors plus, the reality is all of these things say one thing, one story, one story that I would like to call the king and his kingdom story. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. The, the reality is, though, that we read the Bible differently than it was intended. Like, instead of one big story, one overarching story about this king and his kingdom and what this king is about to do in our world, we tend to read it in bits and pieces. I brought with me a, uh, a, a prop. It's not actually a prop. I mean, it's a prop, I guess. I don't know. It's this. It's this lovely little book. It's called Jamie's Busy Book. I'll just let you get your brain around that for a second. 
Sarah's laughing. So uh, when, I was, when I was little, apparently, I was not a very uh, sit-still sort of kid. And that probably pretty much irritated my mother, which, you know, before I had children, I probably judged her for it. But now that I've had children, I get the whole, let's give them something to keep them busy, right? Uh, so this is, was my busy book, and it had all kinds of stuff in it. My mom repurposed it. She's a good recycler. She's from Montana. She recycles nothing but things like this. And uh, so she recycled this thing and turned it into, this may be the only experiment in recycling. I don't know. Oh, I've got all kinds of stuff in here. Like this picture of Heidi when we were first dating. She's hanging out with others, two other women on the couch, but uh, you might want to check that one out after service. She was cute, still is. Uh, there's pictures of me from college. There's a picture of me actually climbing the biggest rock climbing I've ever done, 120 feet, scared to death, and it's in there. And there's all kinds of these great just pictures from my birth all the way through to my high school graduation, but you're not allowed to look at those pictures because of the haircut. And uh, th- this book is it's full of pictures, little pictures and images of my life. And I thought I'd share a few of them with you. Uh, this one, what, what could you tell about me from this picture, do you think? What would you say? Yeah, sleepy or suspicious, maybe. <laughs> what I can tell from this picture is that your pastor has a large head but he's still good-looking, right? And this one over here, this one tells you something really important, right? It tells you that I wasn't always gluten-free. I got to tell you, the good old days, right? The good old days. Here, I'm going to show you another picture, and, and, and just, let's see, this is the next one. Take a look at that. He looks like Isaac. He looks like Isaac, only a little bit beat up, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good story right there. What happened was that we were living in Virginia at the time, and we had this kind of back 40. It was really about an acre, I think, and my parents liked to garden. And one of the things my parents really loved, and I knew this about them, was it was asparagus. How many of you love asparagus? I hate the stuff. I can't stand it. You know, it makes the bathroom smell weird. We'll just go with that. I mean, that alone, the bathroom smells weird after you eat that stuff. Um, and then... But the reason I really hate it is because I found a patch of wild asparagus in the back 40 of our house in Virginia, and I went and I picked a whole bunch of it from my parents. It just turns out that that wild asparagus also happened to be growing with poison ivy. So this was me after the the Benadryl shot, (laughs) when the swelling had gone down and I could breathe again. It was great fun. Yeah, let me show you another picture. Now, brace yourself. This one's a little harder to take. Now, this one was when a tire blew up in my face, a whole truck tire. You probably, I've shared this story before, but I, I've never showed the picture. There, there's a tire, and it blew up in my face, and this is what I looked like about eight hours later after some of the swelling had gone down, and um, I couldn't eat jello, just anything but jello for a few days after that. It was a mess. Now, if you were to take this book and just pull out those individual pictures, you would get parts of my story, right? You would get little glimpses of of who I am and what's happened to me. But the thing is, if you took this picture and the picture before, you want to put that one back up there? He'll do it in a second. He was adjusting something. So if you were to take those two pictures only from my entire life, without knowing the stories that went with them, you might assume that my parents abused me, right? You might assume that Oh, this kid keeps getting beat up. What's going on in this family? 
taken out of the context of the whole story, you get a different picture of my life. And then the reality is that any one of these pictures, you can take them down now so it's not distracting. I know you guys are all looking at me. He's like, but he's still cute. He's still cute. You take any one of the pictures of this book out of there and you just get a piece of my story. You don't get the whole story. And that's the truth of the Bible. When we try to teach the Bible on Sunday mornings, what we do is we, we pull out a section or a piece of that bigger story. And we often can lose a sense of the bigger story because we're focused on the smaller story. This Bible is it's a collection of stories that make up a saga, the saga of the king and his kingdom. And what we want to do is to teach you to read the Bible from the perspective of the greater story so that when you read the smaller stories, when you see those individual pictures, you can begin to place that into that bigger story. And then ultimately, what we really, really hope is that you will look at your own picture, your own piece of of life, your own moment in history, this picture that is your life, and you will be able to see how it fits into God's greater story, into the story of the king and his kingdom, all right? That's what we're talking about for the next few weeks. But the thing is, I think that we, when we teach the Bible the way that we do, it causes many of us to misread the Bible. We approach it in a wrong way, and it messes with how we see the story. And I wanted to share a few kind of common ways in which people read the Bible that takes and reshapes our approach to the Bible. The first one is this, is, is we approach the Bible as a moral code book, right? It's, it's, a, it's a book of laws and rules and ways in which we have to behave in order to call ourselves a Christian. Uh, one of the, the catchphrases for, for this form of reading the Bible, you may already know it, it's the acronym Bible, which stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Right? You guys, do you, anybody remember there was a song back in the basic instructions before leaving earth? And it was really catchy and it was really awesome. It was a great band, but man, they just turned the Bible into a rule book. You know, it's like you could take your car and pull out the, the manual and you could pull out the Bible and put them side by side and they do the same thing. Right? They, they tell us how to live. They tell us what to do. On one hand, it's a very practical way to read the Bible. I mean, that's what we really like. My, my primary critique of my preaching over the years has been, you're not very practical. You need to make it practical. Tell us what to do. And I always kind of rankle at that because I don't think the Bible is meant to be like, it's not meant to be a manual. It's not meant to be like, hey, I'm struggling in my marriage, so we're going to go and turn to the letter M and look up marriage and find out how to fix my marriage. It's not how it's intended to be read. It's not a moral code book at all. In fact, it's not even meant to be an answer book. It's not a book of answers. It's actually meant to be a book that asks us questions. It's a question book. We're going to talk more about that later. The second way that I think that we misread this, we misapproach it, is what I like to call versitis. It's a disease, versitis. Versitis is a condition where people get stuck in single verses. Now, the Bible wasn't actually put into this format where all 66 books were put together, and then we've had chapters and verses for like a long time after it was written. I, I've spaced, my brain just could only forgot how long ago it was, but I want to say it was something like four or 500 years ago before the verses were put in. And it wasn't until 400 years after Jesus that we had all 66 books collected together. It was never meant to be read 
in chapter and verse. Like, take your favorite novel. Like, you take your favorite novel. I'm trying to think of a good novel, like Ben-Hur. I love the book Ben-Hur. It's a great book to be reading uh, around Christmas time. Or the book The Robe is another great book that's great to read around Easter time. Recommend going and getting that now. But if you were to take that and take each chapter and make each sentence or sentence and a half in some cases a verse number, it makes it really difficult to read it as a story. That's not how it was meant to be. And what we do when we take and we have this versitis disease as we read the Bible, we wind up taking single verses and we pull them out and we barbecue them. And we pull them so out of their context that we're like looking at one corner of one picture and we're building entire theological ideas on it. And worse, we're like building an entire Christian book, Christian t-shirt, Christian coffee cup industry on this stuff. We pull out a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11. Love this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. It is a, that is a powerful verse. It is a verse that means so much to so many people. And we, we take that verse and we put it on posters and we make prints out of it and t-shirts and keychains. We write songs about it. And when something bad has happened in your life, you say, well, that's just not God's plan for me. His plan is to prosper me, not to harm me. The health wealth gospel folks will even take that and spin it even further and say, look, if you are not living in prosperity, if you are not living in the, the plan, you, if you're not living in prosperity, then you're not living in the plans that the Lord has from you, and therefore you are not walking with God. Everything in your life should be prosperous, your work, your finances, your family. But here's the catch. This sentence is actually spoken in the midst of the most traumatic moment in the history of Israel. I mean, if you had had, if you'd lost your wife and your kids and your house and then got cancer and your dog, you're not just a country song. You're some semblance of what the entire nation of Israel was going through when this verse was written, okay? It is the worst moment that you could imagine. Everything is lost. And God says, for I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And so he goes on to say, so go and seek the welfare of the city I have placed you in. What? God says he takes Israel and moves them out of their nation and places them in the nations of the world into Babylon, into captivity. And he says, be a blessing to that city and to those people because I know the plans I have for you. This isn't about you and what you're going through. This is about my kingdom. Expand my kingdom. We miss the big story of the king and his kingdom by pulling that one sentence out and getting stuck in Versailles. The last one is this, and this one I see all the time. I know some of you are like, oh, those two first two weren't me. This one might hit you. It's, it's what I like to call promise and blessing mining. We kind of see this as, as a, a hill of gold, you know, wrapped in dirt of culture and wrapped in the dirt of, of history and uh, things that we don't understand. And so when we go to it, we want to go in there and we want to dig and mine out the morsels and nuggets of, of blessing and promise so that we can know what's good and true. Now, before I go further, I want to say I totally believe that God makes promises in this story. And I totally believe that God keeps his promises. And I totally believe that God is blessing us. And his blessings and promises are good and true. And they are a place from which we can pray. We can find freedom. We can, we can stand secure in his promises. But Christians have this habit of taking those promises and blessings and ignoring all the rest. We, we, have you ever got one of those uh, Bible blessings or Bible promises calendars? 
these little desktop calendars. They're like about this big. And you set them, and each day you get like eight words of the Bible that are his blessing for you for that day. And one day it's about God's faithfulness. And the next day it's about his, his security. And the next day it's about how he's promised this thing to you or blessed you in this way. And you're supposed to pray and stand on these things each day. But you have no sense of where it came from or what it's doing there or why this blessing is for you today. And it's not necessarily spoken into your story. It's just this random encouragement for the moment. What happens when we read the Bible this way All the time. I like how Scott McKnight puts it. He says this. He says, when people read it all the time like this, for one thing, everything becomes light and airy. These people become optimistics and wear big smiles. Dot, dot, dot. My my daughter Amelia says that all the time. You know, the little dot, dot, dot. You know, it's that wait for the next sentence. But, dot, 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 until something bad happens. When it hits the fan, faith goes out the window. The big problem with all of these ways of reading the Bible, whether it's mining it for its blessings and promises only, or having versitis, or it's a moral code book, is that outside of just taking them out of context, like looking at one picture from my life, the things that are there are never meant to say necessarily what they say, and we miss the bigger picture of God's story. And what happens is is we become the center of the story. This becomes about us, and this is not about you, and it is not about me. It is about the king, God, and his kingdom. Now, there are redemptive benefits. There are things that happen to us because of this story, but this story isn't about us. The people who wrote this were not thinking about you, and that's hard to take in our culture where everything is about us. It's hard, hard to accept when we come wanting to be a better person, when we come wanting to seek salvation. It's not about you. So how then do we read this, this book? Well, I think that this book asks us one central question. It says that there is a king, there is a kingdom. What are you going to do about it? This is where you come into play in this grand story. There is a story nestled in this Uh, what I would call Act 2, not Acts chapter 2, but Act 2 of this story. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we're going to talk about it. 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you're using the blue Bibles, which are around you, I believe it's page 131. I have all the pages memorized, obviously. Um, So I just pulled that one out of my head. 131. It's as good as 135, but it's 131. I'm pretty sure. Am I right? Am I right, Sarah? You got a blue one. Is it 131? <laughs> she's, she's reading something else. She's busy looking for a promise. Um, let me know when you find a good one. We'll put it on the screen. It's 131. Good job. I remembered. Um, we're going to look at this story from, from 1 Kings, and it's a story um, from the life of Samuel, but Samuel doesn't appear too much in it. Um, as you're turning there and getting there, let me give you kind of the big picture. The big picture, actually, of the whole Bible. And rather than start in Genesis, I've decided to start somewhere else. The book of Revelation. The end of the Bible. In fact, the end of the Bible is probably one of the most important parts for us to know. It is the scariest book of the Bible. It's the book that we don't want to read because we don't understand it. But what I would encourage you to do is to go home and read chapters 20 through 22. It's not as long as it sounds. I mean, that's like two chapters of the Bible. Yeah, it's... 
you know, a couple pages. Um, and what you see here at the end of the book of Revelation is this, is that God speaks a vision of how things are going to end, of how this king and his kingdom story is going to end up. John, the author of Revelation, has a vision, and what he sees is this coming down from the sky, a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and new earth, there is a king who is also a lamb, who is Jesus. In this kingdom, God will be the people's God. There will be no other God. And the people will be God's people. So there's this picture of a relationship between God and people where there's nothing standing between them. There's no mediaries. There's no uh, other gods uh, trying to enforce us or enslave us. It's just God and God alone. There will be no suffering. There will be no sorrow, no pain, no hatred, no trauma. Evil will finally be defeated and goodness will be established on the earth. Peace and safety will be our way of life. And God will rule forever and ever. And we, God's people, will place all of our shiny, glittery, wonderful things at his feet. Like all the things that you work really hard to earn and receive now, all the things that are most important to you, your money, your wealth, your position, your degrees, your honors and glories, whatever they may be, the, the image that is happening here is in this new heaven, the people are laying these things down at the feet of God. And it's not a picture of God enforcing this to happen. You have to tithe. You have to give. But it's this reality of people realizing for the first time how worthy God is of these things. And that everything that I have really means nothing compared to this king. And so we lay all these things down. And then the king provides for us, provides the most wonderful and best of all things. Now, many people call this a utopian dream, but this is the ending of the king and his kingdom story. And if there is a king named God, and he says, this is how it's going to end, I got to say, if that man or that, that God can speak into, create, speak into the chaos and create a universe as vast and as complex as this, when he says, this is how it's going to end, this is how it's going to end. This is good news. This is where we're headed. But unfortunately, this story that we're looking at here is not there yet, right? A good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Bible has a beginning in Genesis. It has an end in Revelation and a really long middle. Well, guess what? We're in the middle of it. And our stories fall into this place where we are moving toward this end in the end of Revelation. But at this point in history, in 1 Samuel, God's people are a hot mess, okay? They are a hot mess. They are living in the land of Israel, and all the nations are surrounding them, and they're at war with some of them, and others are just co-opting. They're just bringing them on it. Hey, just come in and be part of our kingdom. And, and then when people do come in, they bring their gods and their ways of worship and their values. There's child sacrifice going on. There's prostitution, ritual prostitution going on. All sorts of stuff that's happening as people are worshiping other gods other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. On top of that, the very people that are supposed to be leading people into God's presence, the priests, the rabbis, the pastors, what they're doing is that they're going around and they're stealing people's tithes and offerings. As people bring offerings to God, they take whatever they want and they use it however they want. The worship of Yahweh is a just total train wreck. 
Because people will go on Saturday to the temple and they make their sacrifices and then the priests are cutting the finest and best and taking the the gold and using it for their own wealth and position. And then on Monday they go down and they worship at the Ashtarapoles or the Baals. It's like weird words, but fish gods and all these other sorts of gods. And they're giving their, their wealth and their power and their position and even their children to these other gods. And at the same time, Israel's at war with these people called the Philistines. But because of their history, because God has been out in front of them all this time, these people are really confident that they will win whatever war they go into. They, they sing, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness, and then they go worship something else. So when the prophet Samuel comes and he says that God has called us to go to battle, all the people come marching out. They bring their swords and they bring their spears and their axes. And you know, even people are bringing forks and toothpicks because, hey, God's in this and we're just going to win. If the prophet says, go to war, we're going to war. They march out. They get out there on the battlefield. The Philistines are ready to go. Somebody says, go. I don't know how this works. Maybe they have a starting gun or whatever. And all of a sudden, Braveheart happens, right? Bah! People are marching. There's blue on their face. And they go to war and they fight. Now, in those days, they didn't have like lights and they didn't have night vision. So they could only fight during the day. So they fought from sundown or from sun up to sundown. And at the end of the day, everybody went back to their camps and they counted who was not there. They got back and they found out, oh my goodness, we lost. We lost. We fought these people. God said to go do it, and we lost. I don't understand. So somebody, one of the priests, get this great idea. I know what we didn't do. We didn't bring the Ark of God with us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you guys have seen uh, Indiana Jones, right? It's a, it's a golden box with wings on it, and it's this throne of God on earth. All the worship of Israel took place in front of this Ark. It contained the Ten Commandments. It contained manna from the desert. All these reminders of what God had done in the past, and it represented God's living presence among them. And they thought, hey, if we take God out to the battlefield, we're sure to win. We're sure to win. So they did. They get up the next morning, and whoever was left, whoever could fight, came out to the edge. And all of a sudden, when the ark comes out, the whole nation, it says, raised up a great shout which really freaked the Philistines out, right? The day before, they just kicked their tails, but now there's this shout of victory coming from the camp of Israel. They're singing, our God reigns, our, you know, and they're just singing their worship songs and villagers. Like, what are we going to do? We are sure to lose. One of them says, hold on, hold on, hold on. It's time for us to man up. Now, I don't like using that word because it makes women sound like they're less somehow. You know, we don't say woman up. I mean, I've seen birth. I mean, we men, we need to woman up sometimes. It's crazy. This is their words. They're like, no, we need to man up because we're going to go out there and if we die scared, then we're dying as wimps and we can't have that. So let's man up. So they go march out and they're ready to go. They're, they're pumped. They're hyped. They're just ready to die for their own manhood. And they march out and Israel goes and the ark comes down and they come together. And at the end of the night, guess what happened? Israel lost again. And not only that, but God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, was taken from them by the Philistines. Cool story, huh? It's really encouraging. In the middle of the Bible, there's a really encouraging story about God being stolen from God's people. You're waiting for me to get to the part where I read it, right? I have to give you all this back. So these people take the Ark, and they march it into their city, And they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. 
Now, Dagon was a fish god. He was half fish, half man. He was a fertility god and a god of harvest for, for these people. Sacrifice system around that, they would sacrifice their own blood, human blood to the god. They would sacrifice the best of their, their crops and the best of their harvest from the sea around them. And it was, a, it was a heavy toll that Dagon took upon their people. But they believed deeply that Dagon was the one that provided everything they had. So they just kept giving and giving and giving. And they thought, we won. Dagon is clearly powerful, clearly more powerful than the god of these Israelites. So I have an idea. Let's take their god. They just looked at the ark and thought it was another idol. Let's take their god. And we're going to put it in front of ours. And, and we're gonna, they set it right down in front of this great fish god. It was in their temple, and they put the Ark of the Covenant right in front of it. And they said, look, Israel's God is bowing to Dagon. They go to bed. Now, we've had two twists in this story so far, right? The first twist is they lost. The second twist is they lost, and they lost the Ark of the Covenant, and their priests were killed, by the way. Now we have another twist. The priests of Dagon get up in the morning, and they come in to do their offerings, and here is their God, Dagon, laying down face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. What happened? It must have been a drunk reveler, you know, people partying at night, and they must have just bumped it, knocked it over. So they set it back up. They go to bed that night. They get up the next morning. They come in. This time, Dagon is laying down on his face again. But not only is he laying face down, but his head and hands have been cut off, and they're set to the side. That eh, freaks him out a little bit. Here's what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Ready? Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod. That's the, the city where this took place, and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, biblical scholars actually believe this was an outbreak of the bubonic plague. Uh, there's other, other texts and some, some supporting evidence, actual, from history showing that uh, there was an infestation of rats in this area, and it began to spread the bubonic plague, the black plague, amongst the people, all the way back in the Iron Age. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines, and they asked them, what shall we do with the ark of God, the, of the ark of the God of Israel? And I think that's the important question. It's the question that this text asks us. It's the question that this whole story of the king and his kingdom asks us. See, in their mind, the ark was just an idol. It was just like Dagon. So when they say, what do we do with the ark? They're really saying, what are we going to do with God? This God, what are we going to do with him? Now, you would have thought after the display of power of knocking over their God and taking his head and hands off to show that not only does their God bow before him, but he is humiliated and utterly fake compared to the God of the universe, you would have thought that they would have turned their hearts to Yahweh. It was a, it was a sign of, of, of compassion they treated the ark of God in ways that the ark was never meant to be treated. They treated God's presence in ways that it was never been to be treated. And yet God didn't lash out in that moment. He just showed them who he was. I am more powerful than Dagon. But when they persisted, that's when the plagues began to break out. And even then, they wouldn't turn their heart to God. Just like the people of, of Egypt in the book of Exodus, their hearts were hardened. And that's how the Bible describes the people that are not of the kingdom of God. Their hearts are hard. 
The good news is, is the Bible says, God declares to us that I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We can be a part of the kingdom of God if we choose it. But they didn't. They didn't turn their hearts to God. And instead, they just decided to try to get rid of him. They answered, Have the ark of God moved to Gath. It's the next town over. There were seven major cities in Philistine, the Philistines at the time. And they just took the ark and they moved it from place to place to place, just trying to get rid of it. One city said, well, we don't want this. You take it. We don't want them. You take it. We don't want them. You take it. And each time the same thing happened. God's knocked over, plagues happening. It created great panic throughout the cities. It afflicted people of every city that the place the ark touched, both young and old, an outbreak of tumors on all the people. So they sent the ark of God off to the next city. Everywhere the ark went, people died. Again, you would have thought the people would have turned their heart to God, but they didn't. They just wanted to get rid of him. It's an interesting story, and I find it really ironic. It's kind of a dark humor. I like dark humor sometimes. But it has a point. There is a God. Dagon is not him. There is a God. You are not him. So what are you going to do with him? We have this habit, I think, sometimes of trying to keep God at just enough of a distance so that we don't have to deal with him. We want to receive his benefits, but we don't want to necessarily be all in with God. I think the worst part of this story, though, is not how the Philistines treated God and how they tried to get rid of him. I actually think it's how Israel, God's people, treated God. It's not the plagues, it's not the destruction or the war, it's how God's people who he rescued and saved and brought into his kingdom treated God. You would have thought these people, of all people, would have treated God with honor and respect and waited and listened to hear what he would lead, where he would lead them and what he would call them to do. But instead, they treated like God like a weapon to be used. They treated him like a genie. If we bring out the ark, we're sure to win. They suffered from versitis. They suffered from morsels and blessing mining, blessing and promise mining, and they forgot the commands and the call to be a blessing. I think God was trying to tell them, you're missing the point. You're marching to war, but I'm calling you to bring my kingdom to the nations. And God wasn't having it. There is a God, and they are not it. Both parties in this story, they face the same question. God is real. God is king over a kingdom, and we can choose to be a part of it or not. We can choose to be more than a Sunday Christian. We can choose to enter into his kingdom and be deeply transformed and deeply transform the world around us. We can choose to follow him in his ways. We can choose to worship and obey. We can choose to live as members of a king and in a kingdom where God's rule and reign brings justice and brings mercy. Or we can choose to be an active rebellion against that kingdom. See, what is really awesome is that we see from this bigger story, the second part of the king and the kingdom story is that there are redemptive benefits. That is, when we choose to be a part of God's kingdom, 
God works to restore us, to redeem us, to recreate all the things that are broken and lost in us, all of the trauma and the hurt and the pain of the years that weighs upon us, that God comes in and works to heal those things. He doesn't just leave them alone. In chapter 7, just two chapters later, Israel decides to turn their hearts back to God. Even after worshiping other gods, after giving themselves wholly in all sorts of ways to the gods of the nations around them, after losing battle after battle, after losing the Ark of the Covenant, they say, wait a minute, we have, it's not just that God isn't for us, but we are not for God anymore. We have turned from Him. And in chapter 7, Samuel says, if you are turning your hearts back to God, you need to go and tear down all of the idols and the places of worship to foreign gods. And you know what? That's what they do. They turn their heart back to God, and God restores Israel to relationship with Him first and foremost. And then He begins restoring to them the land that they had lost, the places they had lost. And some of those places were the lands of the Philistines. And you know what happened when they got the lands of the Philistines? They destroyed the temples of Dagon, the poles of Ashtoreth, all of these places of worship whether it be the fish god or the sex god or whatever god it happened to be, they destroyed them and tore them down. And in their place, the worship of Yahweh took place. And people who were far from God suddenly were made part of God's kingdom. God didn't just restore Israel, but He restored the nations. The people were introduced to the king God, who is working to bring an unimaginable end to this story. So the question for you this morning, and the question I feel is fresh revelation for us, the question that I feel like uh, God was asking all through worship this morning, is that you're presented with the presence of God, what are you going to do with it? You are presented with the presence of God. What are you going to do with it? Will you let God be God in your life? Humans, uh, we, we worked through this in our Rooted the other night, um, talking about strongholds. And one of the strongholds that I identified in my own life was the stronghold of control. where I want to control and manipulate situations for the best outcome for everybody, but especially for myself. I, like to, I prefer to look good than to look bad. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. And because of that, I would rush out and, and do whatever it takes to make things happen. And we're in a season of life as a church where things don't seem like they're happening so much. But in this moment, this morning, I felt God's presence. And God was speaking to my heart. And he said, will you allow me to be God? And he's asking each one of you, will you allow God to be God? In your reading of the Bible, will you allow God to be God? We read, we read things from the Old Testament especially, and we have a hard time like, oh my gosh, this is so judgmental it seems. It seems like so harsh that God doesn't, God doesn't seem to love these people. He's just really harsh. Will you let God just be God in that? Instead of just rejecting it and throwing out the baby with the bathwater? Will you allow God's kingdom story to be what it is and let it speak to you what it wants to speak to you and what God wants to speak to you? Will you let God be God in your career? 
instead of fighting and scrabbling to climb the ladder, will you allow God to make a way of blessing for you that you walk in? And your family, instead of fighting and working harder and working harder and working harder, will you just walk in the blessing that God has set before you? In your neighborhood, will you be the blessing that God has called you to be? This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. There is a God, and you are not Him, and what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with God? I'm going to take a moment in silence to allow God to speak to you and to see what the Lord would have for you from this this morning. And then we're going to close by prayer and um, singing the doxology. Um, But in that time, I just want to invite you, don't not respond to God. Don't just stand back and say, okay, there is a God. That's good for you, Pastor Jamie, but I'm going to continue in this way. Respond to God. Respond to God how He calls you to respond this morning. Let's just take a moment in silence and allow the Lord to speak to us. Jesus, we ask that you would Take these words and make them fresh revelation in our heart this morning. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. God reveals um, places in your heart that you feel that you've tried to take the place of God or you've tried to control your outcomes where you've not pursued God or you've tried to pass him off to the side and not deal with this God. Would you just confess that in your heart? Jesus, we pray that you would forgive us of the ways in which we have really tried to be God on our own where we've treated you like a genie, where we've treated you like a weapon, where we've treated you um, just like a blessing and answer machine. God, we want to declare that you are king and ruler of our hearts, our lives, our churches, our families, our neighborhoods. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us how you want to reveal yourself to us, not the way in which we want to receive you. God, even when it's uncomfortable for us, we want to stand secure in your love for us. And so, God, we pray that you would give us fresh revelation of your love and your forgiveness as we turn our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand with me? And we're going to close by singing the doxology. It's an ancient hymn, and it's a good way to go out because it reminds our hearts that we are walking in God's praise. So let's sing this together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in the grace of the Lord to discover that you are members of His kingdom, to be and to bring His kingdom wherever you go. Knowing that Jesus loves you deeply, Heidi and I love you as well. Amen. Uh, There's still prayer available in the backspace.